This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, the buttery goodness. What makes a story grab its audience? I love that word. What, buttery? Buttery, yes. Buttery. Buttery's fine. It can be overused, but I think in this context it's going to work. Mm, I'm yes. confident. <laughs> yes, I think so too. Um, now, this is going to be a slightly more technical episode um, with regards to kind of writing. So this is definitely going to be one for them, for them writers or for any readers who are sort of interested in this kind of thing and want to have a, a greater idea of some of the process behind writing um but Jules do you want to talk a little bit about what inspired this episode yeah um this is one of those things where it's a it's a combination of factors mm. and what really crystallized it was me reading somebody's book and going ah that was what I was wondering about but basically I've been wondering while why some things just hit and sometimes I can even read something very early on in an arc stage mm. and think this is going to hit really big but I wouldn't have been able to tell you exactly why until yeah. until now <laughs> until ah. now um, this is not me saying that I can predict the next big thing I can't but I can probably now look at things and go that's got the potential to be the next big thing yeah um, at, le- you know. at least for you as a readership I think yeah, as well. yeah. that's right um, but basically I was looking at sales figures for my various series of books mm-hmm. and I was wondering what grabbed readers about certain of my books, which I'll get into. Um, and it was it was one of those things where something that was more of a runaway hit surprised me in being more of a runaway hit, if you, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes the next thing will come out and you'll be... Maybe you'll be caught by surprise and, and sort of like, why is that the next runaway hit? I mean, I don't think any... It, the classic example, which again, we will get into a bit more later, is the Harry Potter books, because at that yeah. point in time, they were given a very low prognosis of success, weren't they? Yeah, they initially. were. Um, and I think 21 agents passed on them. And there were various publishing houses which also passed on them. And then they said, you know, it's got teeny, teeny marketing budget. And sometimes it's just somebody writes into a gap in the market and it's a supply and demand. And if you're the only person with the supply, then yes, you're going to make bank. Yeah. But there's more to it than that because you don't get something that really hits and is that enduring without without some of this buttery goodness, which we will go into. Yes, that buttery, buttery goodness, that buttery, buttery goodness. biscuit base. <laughs> Um. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as Madeline said, this is basically a more advanced episode on Storycraft. It's probably going to be a two-part episode because this is not a short topic and we do kind of want to do it justice. Hopefully yes. by the time we've gone through everything, even though we cannot possibly do an exhaustive list of examples, mm. um, you will have caught the drift enough that you'll be looking at your own things and going, aha, I can see the <laughs> butter in that. That's where they put the butter in. I am going to you beat this metaphor today. You are just beating this metaphor yeah, like absolutely. straight out the gate. It's it hasn't got a chance. <laughs> nope. <laughs> anyway, for anyone who's interested, um, I was reading a book called Seven Figure Fiction, which is it's by T. Tom- uh, T. Taylor, rather sorry, not T. Thompson, T. Taylor, and it's 
she's a romance author, and mm-hmm. this is obviously a non-fiction book, and it's got one of those buzzy titles that would have generally made me go, hmm, are you really offering what you're, you're promising? Yeah. And I might have given it a miss, but the marketing group I'm part of were kind of like, no, this is a really, really good book, and then by coincidence I caught Joanna Penn's Creative Penn podcast where she was interviewing the author, um, yeah. and heard some of it, and I was like, actually, there's something there, I want to hear more about this, so I read the book, Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 good. It's a really good book, and her basically her theory is that there are universal fantasies, or you know, if you like, daydreams mm-hmm. that everybody has, regardless of what genre and things you like to read. And if you can find a way of weaving the themes within those sort of universal fantasies, which cross all genre bounds and and cultural bounds and things, then. You, your book will have a wider appeal. So it's a, a quite a simple idea, and then mm. she breaks it down. Um, and of course, once I caught the drift of that, I suddenly started thinking, so what have I done that's made this particular series better selling than some other things? And I realised exactly how much butter I'd put in a particular series <laughs> without, without necessarily realising it. I'd love to say that I did it on purpose. I was just that clever, but I wasn't. Okay, this was pure instinct. <laughs> So that's that's kind of what we're looking at. It's a really interesting thing because it's one of those uh, topics which I sort of might have thought of on a subconscious level, but I never consciously went, "Let's actually analyze that." Um, yeah, and then exactly. and then Jules was like, "Let's do this," and I was like, well, "Okay, what are we?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I sort of looked into it, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Um, yeah, it's like, what's come up her weird little mind this week? And then, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never that derogatory towards you. I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> I point out some very odd rabbit holes and insist you accompany me down them, so to be so, fair. You see, you see the little hole down there? Yes, we're going down that hole. <laughs> okay. <laughs> follow the white rabbit <laughs> we'll follow the buttery rabbit in this case the buttery um, rabbit yes <laughs> so yeah it, it was kind of a coin drop moment for me having read the book and i realized that this is something that is sort of been percolating at the back of my mind for a while and i just haven't quite been able to get that last handhold so i could see over see over the top if you like <laughs> sorry i'm really mixing metaphors badly here so. you well yes but also like um Sorry, I must resist the urge to make a height joke. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're lucky that you're X number of 100 miles away. Uh, Yes, I am. And that's why I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, a little bit more about my background process. And I will keep this short because my background process is not going to be massively interesting to anyone. But this is basically about The King's Knight. Now, so far, these books have outsold all my other books by about eight to one. And my other books don't sell badly at all. But I've sold thousands and thousands of copies of King's Night. Um, And that's not bragging rights. That's just a kind of, wow, that's good. I'd really like to build on that and Mm. also um, do that with everything else, which, again, is not doing too badly. And... I was just thinking, so, but but why is it? Because I wouldn't have said I was a particularly practised historical fiction writer when I started them, even though I'd co-written a couple of historical fictions. Yeah. And the thing that was 
kind of well okay I mean, there's no greater market for historical fiction than there is for urban fantasy which yeah. is the other thing i mostly write um so it's not like i was writing romance and crime noir or something where there's a big market for one and quite a, a, a much smaller market for the other there's yeah. kind of an equal market for histvic and urban fantasy in my opinion yeah um yes some of it might be down to marketing but i don't think it's just that certainly not with my most recent series uh, and some of it might be writing more to a target market yeah but again i would say i'm still managing to do that with say harker and blackthorn yeah i'd agree so none of it really explained everything um, and what it really didn't explain and the thing that was kind of doing my head in in the background was the wider appeal because even people who were quite lukewarm about historical fiction or didn't read it at all in fact um, messaged me and said they enjoyed the series Yeah, that they felt compelled to pick it up and that they couldn't stop reading and they'd gone through all three books in short order and yeah, we would all like to be able to duplicate that with every single series we write I think I, I agree. I mean, that's that's the kind of the goal, the aim. But it's true. When it came to the King's Knight, I did I recommended it to a few people on the merit that even if they didn't read a lot of historical fiction or they w- wanted to get into historical fiction, but they found it to be quite uh, heavy and difficult to get into, I would recommend the King's Knight to them because yeah. I thought that it was an extra excellent sort of not, entry level. Makes it sound like it's basic. Uh, <laughs> which is not, <laughs> but um, you know, I thought it was a really good sort of foothold into the genre, yeah, um, and a good way of kind of reading some in whilst also kind of fulfilling their own personal needs. And a lot of them were fantasy readers; they liked reading fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I, I've heard that from other people as well. Sort of like, I wouldn't normally read this. I'm a bit. 50-50 on historical fiction mm-hmm. um, but I couldn't put them down kind of thing uh, I'd like to say here that I'm a competent writer whose main strength is usually being able to tell a good story I've got no illusions about talent or um, uh, you know ability and stuff a lot of what I do is, is because of practice and I'm, I'm happy with that that's not a problem I hope I'll continue to improve mm. um, but it's not that I'm so fabulous a writer that I transcend the audience boundaries and marketplaces, so I knew it wasn't <laughs> that either. And not knowing why something you wrote is best-selling is really, really annoying. <laughs> because how do you duplicate that? And it, it did start to play at the back of my mind for a long time. Um, anyway, the, as I said, coin drop moment reading seven-figure fiction um, is that I unwittingly instinctively added a lot of literary butter (laughs) yes so let's actually kind of get into what we mean by that (laughs) have you ever heard of the art of french cooking by julia childs i think they've made a tv series about it on yes i have and there's a film called julie and julia i read the book of, of which um but the truly horrifying thing, or the truly amazing thing, depending on your perspective, is that Julia Childs basically does everything with, and let's add an entire pat of butter. Yes. <laughs> because butter <laughs> makes everything taste good. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is that is the truth of it. <laughs> um, I'm afraid I've totally stolen this metaphor, because, but it's it's such a good one. But credit to um, Tamara Ta- Taylor, who 
with the author of this particular metaphor is butter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the way you say that, butter. <laughs> it's butter. But yeah, the, the, that's kind of what we're looking at. The stuff that you put in, and you might not know you're putting it in, because I certainly didn't, that just makes it so much more readable and broadens the people who, I mean, the people who read in the genre will probably really, really love it. Yes. Unless you're doing something specific they don't like. The people who don't really read in the genre but read in adjacent ones will be lured in by the smell of butter. And those, <laughs> those who are kind of like, I just want you to tell me a really good story but I'm a bit eh about your genre, will still come. Because, again, you, you, you've made something delicious by putting all this butter in. I really am overdoing the metaphor. But just, you know what? Let's just keep going. Just really going for it. You can and... slide a long way on butter. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't stop now. <laughs> so let's try and separate out a few definitions and things. Although it's worth noting that thing, a lot of this stuff sort of blends together and it should blend together. But just so that this, we're separating out just so that you kind of know what you're doing on what level you're adding things in at. Yeah. Um, so basically your genre gives you the bones of what you need to include in your your story stew or stoop or whatever so it's your base ingredients you can't make it without that yes um it's where you'll get your structure yeah these are the things that your readers will be expecting and if you fail to deliver them um you're actually just going to kind of alienate all of them yeah they'll be kind of that be like well i don't like that flavor yeah i'm off to read something else um you'll get the basis of your characters from the same thing Mm. Um, then you've got tropes which are important ingredients so let's say you're making a romance stew <laughs> um, you need to include a pair of potential lovers a meet yep. cute event a reason for them not to get together immediately obstacles to overcome and a happily ever after and various other things as well yes um, apply the correct level of heat and voila one romance <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you wouldn't then add tropes from a different genre unless you were very deliberately making a genre mashup, and that's a different thing. Yes. But you wouldn't add an apocalyptic event, a training montage, or a car chase, probably. Probably not. Again, unless you are making a different flavour of stew. But that's yeah. fusion, and that's done on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so so there you go, the, your basic things, you've got your genre, which tells you what the recipe is, and you've got your tropes, which tell you what your main ingredients are, if you like. If yeah. Gonna keep on with the food metaphor. <laughs> oh um, God, anyway, we're going to keep the on genre... with the food metaphor. <laughs> oh God, we are, yeah. Uh, if you follow genre conventions and add the right tropes and hopefully write a compelling story, you'll probably get most romance fans on board. Mm. You'll at least get the ones who like stories like yours because there are so many subgenres of romance, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, you might get some who like the adjacent subgenres. However, yes. there are romances that are loved and enjoyed by people who don't like the genre at all. There are fantasy novels that audiences who have never read fantasy suddenly latch onto, or historical fiction read by people who usually read fantasy, and yet for some reason that historical fiction is more accessible to them for some reason. Yeah. Um, the gritty crime shows. Think of things like Breaking Bad, for example. People who generally prefer things that are simpler and less tension-filled um, have suddenly sort of cottoned onto them and can't stop watching. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a just for a life example. Has there ever been any kind of film where you're like, or book where you're like, I don't really read this genre, but I like this one. Yeah, I mean, there must be. There must be loads. I, I'm a little bit broader in my taste now than I used to be. If you're talking about me specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. So now I'm kind of like, well, I'll try more or less anything. Um. Just tell me a good story. But the things that I'll go, oh wow, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. Mm. Tend to be things I think, in hindsight, that have, have, you know, laid the butter on pretty thick. Yeah. Well, I mean, like uh, for me, I think of things like. Um... I don't like sci-fi. There's a number of reasons I don't like sci-fi. Um, I don't hate it, but I wouldn't usually dedicate much time to watching it. And yet I absolutely love Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. Um, I really, really like it. Um, and I think it is because of that buttery goodness. And I think a lot of that buttery goodness is delivered by Data. <laughs> well certainly for you it is yes certainly for me yes yeah. so yeah it, this is where, where the butter comes in if you like there are mm. universal themes universal fantasies or daydreams that appeal to pretty much everyone regardless of their preferred genre Yes. Um, if you add the right amount of butter to your story you'll not only grab your target audience but a few adjacent ones as well and possibly a lot of other readers who don't even read in that genre yes um, anyway before we start really getting into the weeds on this one, a note of caution, <laughs> um, because you should always write to your target audience first, and yourself, mm. obviously, write to please yourself as well, otherwise you're never going to finish anything. Yes. Because <laughs> I, 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 I do think one of the things that a lot of people can kind of get tripped up on when they start writing is trying to write something which is, you're trying to please other people but you don't actually have a very clear idea of exactly who you're aiming at. And I think some people, when they think of target audience, they think, no, I, I want it to be for everybody and fail to understand that, that having a target audience doesn't mean that it can't be enjoyed by a very wide number of people. Again, to use Harry Potter as an example, um, it had a very specific target audience, which was middle grade. You know, it was for pretty much 11-year-olds. Um, yeah. And the whole world, you know all generations were still able to read it and to enjoy it you know um so a target audience means this is the person that i'm that, that gets gets it first if that makes sense that i'm yeah. kind of <laughs> i'm aiming for <laughs> yeah you must have somewhere to aim otherwise you're never gonna land yeah sorry it's just the moment i said that i'm like <laughs> we're now getting into sort of archery metaphor <laughs> <laughs> Um, as, as we've said, this is quite advanced storytelling. So, you know, listen, take it on board. If you're ready to start using it and you have a coin drop moment like I did, then yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But just make sure you've got the basics down first, which is knowing who your target audience is and what you need to include to engage them yes. and that you're writing for them and to please yourself first, because, you know, obviously all readers can tell if you're phoning it in, even if they realise it subconsciously. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into the real examples of, of butter you can add, um, we're going to spend a little while looking at something called core wounds, which, you know, doesn't sound like it's really got a place when we've been using cooking metaphors for the last sort of 20 minutes. It depends how accident prone you are in the kitchen, really. It does, really, yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but basically the idea of the core wound or the core wounding is the thing that the main character usually the main character or, or the main characters it the part of them that's damaged that needs to be healed through going through the character journey so mm. um, main characters at least the engaging ones have at least one core wound sometimes they have several and this is what tends to delineate their character journey it's really noticeable that even in series these particular core wounds and the resulting character arcs tend to repeat on gradually grander scales and we'll give you examples in a minute yeah um the process of telling the story um, essentially heals the core wound in some way for the protagonist. Or occasionally it worsens it, um, or allows for worse and worse choices in an antagonist. We kind of touched on this a little bit when we discussed uh, the monomyth or the hero's journey. Um, because when you look at the hero's journey, the whole idea is that they are going on a physical journey, but also an emotional journey. and a part of that is that there is something fundamentally missing. There is some kind of wound internally when they begin and through the process of the journey, they have to face that wound. They have to face the thing that holds the greatest power against them um, and kind of step through the ring of fire in order to overcome it and become the best version of themselves. So it's a fairly fundamental aspect of most epic storytelling with, you know, the the monomyth being used as an actual story structure intentionally, but also um, actually kind of being used uh, subconsciously as well, because it's such a great structure and we see it all the time in the history of our storytelling. Um, and we see very interestingly how therefore the antagonist is a character who has not been able to step through that ring of fire. Um, so rather than the core, them facing the core wound and kind of stepping away from it or healing it, instead they've kind of been engulfed by it instead. So it's a really, really crucial part of the character and the story plot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and because core wounds are, they tend to be the most relatable part of a character... And, mm -hmm. you know the, the resulting character journey that tends to be the most you, you can be doing a huge sprawling epic fantasy for example or a space adventure um, yeah. something that's so completely different to the reader's own experience of life yeah unless and you're yet, living your seriously living your best life yeah seriously <laughs> um, but something like that um, and usually on on a very subconscious level it's the core wound and the resulting character arc from that core wound that is the relatable part that allows a reader to sort of click with a character. Yes. Which is why it's important. Um, so when I say core cool, wounds are butter, yes, they are. They are kind of butter. I mean, yes, that's a really, really gross um, <laughs> mixture of metaphors. And I kind of wish I hadn't written it down like that, but I'm just going to go with what I've written. But you <laughs> did it anyway. <laughs> I did it anyway. Um, they, they are. They're important. That is something that's a very, very straight i say straightforward but that's that's a fundamental one that you could start with if you want to make your story more easily accessible for a wider audience is start thinking about what you, the core wound of your character is mm -hmm. um and there's something like six main core core wound and character arc type journeys so we're going to talk about some of those now yes 
Um, okay, so the first one and is one that I think I keep coming back to, although again, this is relative, I say this is relatively new information that I've incorporated in the last sort of year. I've been doing it for years, but I didn't know what I was doing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, or not consciously. But this is one that I keep coming back to, and that is rejection to acceptance. So a really good example is Harry Potter, because, you know, he starts off in a position of being rejected by his family, mm -hmm. um, gets accepted to wizarding school, where he is then kind of rejected for being, a, I guess, a bit of an outsider. And then you get the, the cycle repeats itself. He gets accepted when he wins the Philosopher's Stone then rejected again when he might be the heir of Slytherin in the next book. Yeah. And then accepted again. And it just builds and builds and builds throughout the series. It is essentially the same character arc. It's just each ring of fire, as Madeline described it, gets slightly bigger at the end of each book. Yeah, and all of it um, essentially ties into the larger kind of story arc. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it is... A Again, one of the things that you also will note is that certain uh, core wounds will be prevalent in certain fiction. And it's interesting to me that in fantasy, you see a lot of this rejection to acceptance. And you see a lot of it in children's fiction as well. And I think a large part of that is, uh, first of all, that children particularly as you're kind of getting into, you know, getting to be sort of 10, 11, you start to get a better sense of the self and you start to feel quite awkward or different from the other people around you. Um, and I think everybody just feels out of place, don't you? Yeah. Um, you don't realise that everybody else is feeling that way because you really do feel, no, I'm, I'm the only one. Everyone else has kind of got their, their stuff sorted. They don't. They really don't. No one knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. They are confused and scared. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's why it's quite often a core um, strategy in young adult fiction. So, I mean, Twilight, for example, um, Bella's entire journey throughout this, the quartet is is basically rejection to acceptance in each single book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when you look at the book in that way, you understand particularly why it is so much more appealing, I think, to a younger audience than an adult readership. Um, because when you look at Bella's story in that way, it makes a humongous amount of sense for why she would be so attracted to you know uh, to this situation which we as adults look and go oh wow <laughs> that's not the best ever that's that's not the best <laughs> but you're not thinking about it through the teenage lens of i feel alienated from everyone around me i don't fit in and yes. you have to read quite closely to to say that, that is literally what's what she's saying all the way through she's She's old for her years because she's had to look after her mother emotionally. Her mother's always made her feel slightly rejected and like she wasn't wanted. Yeah. So suddenly really being wanted by someone, and there's a lot of other stuff mixed in. This isn't the whole of her character at all, but the baseline is this is someone who's been rejected and is looking for acceptance. Yeah. 
Um, and I've kind of done the same, not exactly the same storyline, obviously, but it's the same M starts in the same position in Unveiled. Yes. In a slightly different way, in the sense of she feels very rejected because, well, she feels rejected by her older sister because of the, it's the whole situation with her mother dying. Yes. Um, on a fundamental level, kind of rejected by her mother because her mother killed herself. Yes. Um, and then rejected by her father. You know, there's a lot of family rejection going on there. And because she's right in the middle of this, this trauma herself, she can't see that she is also rejecting everyone around her. Yeah. Um, and I think it's one of the most powerful story elements when the kind of the sisters sort of get together. And uh, because obviously it's from Emmeline's point of view we don't really you kind of look at grace for example and you think why are you being so cruel to your sister and then you you see it from the other side um and i do still think that grace behaved incredibly badly but she's also a young woman who has felt totally rejected by her mother to the extent that her mother basically said and, and not, not to give too many spoilers, um, her mother seemed to have chosen the other two daughters, and yeah. then just abandoned her. And I think on another level, there's another there's another aspect of rejection, which is that Grace doesn't have the powers that her two sisters have. Yeah, she will never understand quite that experience. She doesn't have that. Um, and so, regardless of the fact she she really doesn't actually want it, there is going to be some kind of level of separation there, which is, can't be easy because you feel, you know, even more alienated from everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and again, without knowing that that's what I was doing, I, I hold my hand up to say I didn't really know this, but the whole thing is about learning to i suppose learning to stop rejecting yourself as well mm -hmm. um learning that yes okay maybe you are an outsider but you can also choose to put yourself on the inside of something else if you want to yeah um and each book subsequently sort of builds on on that from there yes um so other core wounds um control or power to surrender and service um this is a really interesting one. <laughs> yeah, this is this is quite tr tricky, really, because <laughs> you um, for control or power, you have to read things like being extremely talented or being extremely intelligent, having more than somebody else at the very start. Perhaps yes. you start off in a position of wealth um, and privilege, and or you just start off being just a bit better than other people. This is kind of the Doctor Strange thing, isn't it? Everything's come a bit easier to you. And then yes. something happens that makes you really look and reassess what you're doing with your life. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting because this is one you actually get a lot of in mythology as kind of warnings of... Uh, that kind of link into the to to stories of privilege or or actually becoming aware and it, it's kind of used as this big sort of you know particularly for kings or people in positions of power which we've got a couple of examples of that of people who perhaps need to recognize that 
there are more stakes, you know, to to what they're playing with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, to quote Harry Potter again, but Dumbledore's a really good example here. And conversely, so is Voldemort. Yes. Doing, the, doing basically the opposite journey to Dumbledore. Yeah. Um... <laughs> It's interesting because it's a story which is often used for the villains as well. And the idea is that the villains fail the test. Yeah. Um, And the heroes are the ones who manage to pass it. Um, And it's used, I think, also in um, a fair amount of children's fiction for certain characters to actually talk about them growing up and taking responsibility. Um, So... uh, think of a good example of this okay so king arthur yeah um let's talk about the merlin series because obviously that is that was very much aimed towards children uh to begin with arthur is a bit of a brat to be honest um he doesn't have that necessary that great a sense of you know he has a sense of duty but he's he's quite childish he's quite selfish um but we see within him this this desire actually to grow if not the opportunity to do so you know um and from that he becomes a, a far more engaging character and his whole character story is about kind of developing those skills which will one day make him a fantastic king a, an empathetic person which he, we see him become in real time but at the same time every now and again he skirts along the lines of almost being tyrannical um because that's the danger of of having so much power <laughs> other core wounds abandonment to belonging or integration um, this seems to be another one that I tap into quite a lot. Oh my god, it's it's that found family. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Delicious. And again, that one is a really big one in, um, obviously, YA. Yeah. Um, because, again, I think a lot of people at that age just feel very, very isolated from others. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing to note is it doesn't have to be someone actively looking um for somewhere to belong either because i I always feel like a good example is uh six of crows kaz brecker (laughs) who's kind of like no no no, i'm fine on my own i rely on nobody and yet cannot stop himself like collecting people he seriously does someone wrote a really interesting post about it um and they said that no one you know everyone thinks that including jesper jesper thinks oh yes um i wormed my way into kaz and now he can't get rid of me and and it's like no kaz collected you he full-on collected (laughs) you he was like yep this idiot who reminds me disturbingly of my of my brother um he's mine now i'm gonna put him in my debt (laughs) yep yeah definitely um I've used it myself, Hark and Blackthorn. This is Amy's core wound, abandonment to belonging. Yes. A, she's never, on some level, really got over her mother dying and certainly the circumstances, the traumatic circumstances of how it happened and the fact that she was 12 at the time. Yes, I mean, it's one of those interesting things in that 
she seems in the first book to be the most well-adjusted and she's she's far too young to be that well-adjusted <laughs> yeah it's her her coping mechanism is to compartmentalize things and not look at them yeah and she's so intelligent she can get away with it to a certain extent but she's sort of, it's something that she sort of notices i think it's in book three of harker and blackthorn where mm. she says you know i that was it all my chips were stacked on clever and i played to win every time and were there other parts of myself that i'd kind of abandoned and left behind not allowed to develop it's when she's thinking yeah i have a real problem when it comes to forming emotional romantic attachments yeah um and where has that come from is there something you know she ponders this on and off through a couple of books is there something wrong with me is there something a bit broken um and she's not actually wrong there a lot of that comes from this abandonment yes issue that she hasn't really dealt with um but at the same time she's also gone out and very deliberately found people to adopt as family to add to her family yes um and then but also then kind of struggle to kind of identify or to be honest has kind of ignored flat out ignored some of those more delicate emotions i think because occasionally i do think it's almost willful ignorance <laughs> i can't tell you anything that's going to happen in book 10 you know that yes i do know that but you know, <laughs> that's not going to stop me and you know that <laughs> this is what we call an impasse um you also get a much lighter franker version of that with cuthbert in the king's knight Yes. <laughs> I think. It's the it's the amazing thing of, of um you've got poor Gregory who's like, Well, okay, I guess I've sort of adopted this young boy and hasn't realised that Cuthbert has adopted him <laughs> <laughs> Just completely unaware of it until like <laughs> several months down the line he's like, Oh no, <laughs> I have a son now. <laughs> Didn't realise. Yeah. <laughs> Again, buttery goodness, guys. It is. It's that buttery goodness, and honestly, I think that is one of those core aspects. Um, yeah. I so I do like Cuthbert's journey as well. Um, in that way. Uh, okay. So let's look at another one. This one is popular. Um, and this one I think you see in a lot of historic you, you tend to see in a lot of historical fiction but you kind of get it in this because I think it sort of taps into that old chivalric um, and sort of uh, bushido kind of idea which is the, the shame to honour I must refind my honour kind of um, yeah um, it's high fantasy as well because yeah. this is Aragorn's core wounds as well yeah yeah absolutely and it is un basically a character is either born or you know through their childhood or early teens or but basically in their youth at some point there is some big stain on their honor yes um, they're they're born under a cloud they're not favored with uh beneficent constellations at their birth or whatever perhaps yes. a fairy turns up and curses them i don't know <laughs> um but yes uh, that that's that makes them a bit of a reject in many ways and kind of an outsider, but more of a wanderer. 
Yeah. And what, you know, someone who doesn't really fit in and they've got to find their way to a position of of honour. But, you know, the, the honour can be external or it can simply be a case of, no, honour is something that comes from me. It's mine. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting ideas is that they might not actually be rejected by society itself. They might even have people saying, you know, come back, it's time to come back, you've got to stop. But they themselves don't feel right in their own skin. So even if they have support, even if they've got love around them, they feel something is wrong. And they can't get past that. And it's a very personal journey. And I think it's a really interesting one um, when it's done properly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is obviously Jon Snow's entire arc through however many books. (laughs) Um, I mean, you could argue that Jon Snow has other core wounds as well. But I think this is his main one. It's the shame of his his birth is is a supposed illegitimacy yeah and i think it's quite interesting because with john john snow um he kind of has that mix between shame to honor and rejection to acceptance and it mixes in a really interesting way because he obviously he's quite sullen and stuff like that because he he doesn't really feel wanted which hasn't really been helped by Catelyn Stark um, who, you know got jealous of a child Um, (laughs) I've got my own feelings regarding that, I understand it Uh, but yeah, she she didn't like um, she doesn't like John, she doesn't treat him with particular kind of kindness Um, and he wants to find a place to belong which is why he originally leaves to go and join the night watch because he's gonna get out from the shadow of his family because he feels like he doesn't really belong there and he wants to find a place to belong where he can live with honor and the interesting thing is that he is in some ways the most like his most like ned stark uh, most like his adoptive father um he's really kind of taken those those very core values um, in a lot of ways. So this is a case of where the core wounds have mixed um, very, very successfully, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, the uh, shame to honour pathway is also very much Edward Cullen. Yeah. Um... <laughs> his, his dark backstory of eating... I say eating... <laughs> killing paedophiles and murderers etc because he wants to drink blood um, yeah nom on a few people yeah, what I find interesting is that you know I and you know this will be distasteful to some people but if Bella Swan's is rejection to acceptance which yeah it is and Edward's is shame to honour mm. those two kind of dovetail together yeah and they each see their own redemption in the other which is very classical romance yes i mean that that that's kind of like the very baseline of romance as in two people who actually make each other the best version of themselves and somehow mend or heal that thing within each other that's wounded yes and and it's one of those um again it's i think there's lots of things within 
the, the Twilight that I disagree with. Um, but it makes a lot of sense when you look at it in that way. When you look at it about two people who um, complete each other, not in the, you know, I can't live without you way. I'm, I'm not sure I, I approve of that. But in the, actually, you do make me a better person. Yeah. Um, because you actually have fulfilled a part of me or have helped me to find a part of myself that I was unable to accept it because Edward, I think, feels redeemed by Bella yeah. in a lot of ways, which you could say, all right, that's a lot of pressure to put on a teenage girl. Um, but that's a whole other issue, which we're not going to be getting into. <laughs> but as a concept, I think it, it you're right. It, it is full of that typical romantic trope. Definitely. Okay, um, another cool wound. Betrayal to devotion. <laughs> I didn't intend to actually... Obviously, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I was doing it all subconsciously on what I thought was good storytelling. But this is an interesting one. And it's one, again, that I've used a lot for a lot of different... Mostly my male characters, because I think I can include Steve in this one as well. Mm. Um, but generally, you start with a character who has not necessarily had the best start in life so when we say betrayal yes it can mean um if you were writing a romance it could mean a character who had been betrayed by a previous partner and yeah. manages to get over that betrayal to find a better a better romantic partner better love or you know if it was ordinary fiction then maybe it, they get over it and kind of like no they're completing themselves whatever the storyline is yeah um, but it can be in other ways as well so <laughs> Um, Gregory Maudsley from The King's Knight obviously starts off being the very much unsung second son who, you know, he's just not as good at things as his brother is. He's not a shining example of manhood and knighthood the way his brother is. Um, oh, I'm still angry about that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not, you know, people look at him and think he's an unremarkable, blocky and later on quite an ill-favoured man. Um, a big lump, a big brute kind of thing. And he's actually a better person. So much of a better person. <laughs> in many, many ways. But he's he he doesn't have charm. He doesn't have charisma. When it comes to women, he has the opposite of game. You know, his game <laughs> has grown inwards. It's just... it, it, he, he kind of needs a, a woman to look at him and go, actually, <laughs> there's a lot of potential there. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he's he's not great in that respect. And yet, if you can get through this thick callus that has been built up by his previous life and the fact that he was kind of, you know, he lost his mother very young, he was largely rejected by his father, betrayed by his brother and went off to be a mercenary and nothing he saw since then really did more than build up the callus even more. If you can get behind that, he will, you know, he will lay down his life for you because... If you're one of his, you're one of his, that's it. Mm. Yeah. And we, again, w this is where you see a lot of the sort of the core wounds kind of mixing in together. Um, because I think there is a little bit of that found family. There is a little bit of that uh, rejection to acceptance coming in too, as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've also done this with... I, I genuinely think this is Kieran's main character arc as well throughout the series Unveiled and 
the more I look at Steve, the more I'm like, yo, bugger, I've done it again with, <laughs> with Steve. This is this is kind of, I mean, you haven't got Steve's full backstory yet. You won't get that till book eleven. Mm. Um, Madeline knows a little bit, but there is, and there's been hints, <laughs> but the betrayal has largely come early in life, and again, it's been one of these where he's not had the happiest of home lives, and yeah. So, mm, sorry. <laughs> so apparently, this is this is where my my main male potential love interest um, live <laughs> come from. Um, another example, if we want a non-Ironside example, uh, Peter Mellock from Hunger Games. Yeah. Who was far too nice a guy to be involved in the Hunger Games in many ways. You know, if you. I hate the way people read those books and just go, oh, yeah, it's just a dystopian love triangle, when in fact it, it's it's really not. It's so much more than that. The characters are so much more nuanced. And, yeah, you've got teenagers and hormones and things get involved, but it is more a, a case of, no, Peter was already in love with Katniss anyway. Um, yeah. And, yeah, she does kind of betray him several times over the trilogy largely to save his life or to save their lives or yeah. to play along with what their best chances of survival are um and you feel i always feel really bad for him about that because when it i think it's in the second book when he kind of clocks that actually she's not sure she's that into him yeah but you know he might have a rival and um he doesn't get I he doesn't do what I see in so many young adult books where he turns around and it turns into a massive fight or a, a, a she's the prize ring in a tug of war for her affections. Yeah. Um he just kind of goes, Okay, well we'll we'll keep it as it is for the cameras because he knows what's at stake and he's not putting his own feelings first on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I did think was rather realistic, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I can throw a jealous snit, or I can remember that we could die. We... <laughs> These people are actively trying to murder us. Yeah, so there's lots of... I mean, we've only given a, a scant few examples for each of these, and we've got one more to do in a moment. But yeah. there are loads. The more you start thinking, well, what's the cool wound? Which one fits best? You'll mm. probably find it's one of these, and any of the others you find, it'll be an offshoot or it'll be a blending of one of these two or three. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like we've demonstrated, they do blend very, very well. It sounds like we're talking about like a. a, a... <laughs> we're, we're back to cooking and baking. We're back to again, cooking. We? Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're, we're onto the uh, the cocktails. Um, they do blend. <laughs> they they do blend very well. Um, and complicated characters um might very well have these sort of two things which inform one another so that is something you should think about in terms of your character uh for example i think some of them are particularly complementary like the um betrayal to devotion and rejection to acceptance yeah i think these are these actually go quite well together um but also um abandonment and belonging abandonment to belonging integration goes actually quite well with control of power and surrender services particularly if you've got a, a person who for example let's say you have a noble who kind of turns away from their background in order to help the uh, 
sort of do for the greater good robin hood a robin hood story could follow that and have those as two kind of core wounds for example absolutely okay well our last one um and we'll probably wrap the episode up after this so you get a second episode (laughs) injustice to equality which is massively massively popular as a main character arc in young adult and fantasy and science fiction um so you know it's the expanse you see it in probably various iterations you know it's major kira in deep space nine isn't it Mm. um it's katniss everdeen in the hunger games it's alana the lioness in tamora pierce's song of the lioness quartet yeah um and again i mean there's just there's quite a few offshoots i think of it as well sort of play into various things but um yeah, we. It's just it's so many good examples. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it, I don't think it really needs a great deal of explanation. But this is just a case of either the character notices something or wants to go against the grain because they've been given very narrow parameters for their life, or they're mm. forced into a situation like Katniss is, where they have to overthrow an entire system in order to just survive. Yeah, which is. A lot of pressure to put on a teenage girl. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, again, um, you might very well have stories which mix all of these things. Um, so there's, you do have to, to consider that if you're thinking, oh, well, this mine doesn't fit any of these in particular, um, they they come in sort of various shapes and sizes. Definitely. Um, the other thing is the fact that you probably don't just have one main character and one core wound mm. um, main char- with the, that main character. If you look at Harry Potter, then you've got Harry with rejection to acceptance. But I would have said Ron was far more sort of abandonment to belonging because he's always felt overshadowed. Yeah, and someone did actually kind of make a really good example of how um when uh mrs weasley gives um harry one of those watches yeah um she gives ron a new one and she gives harry an old one and it's quite interesting in that you see the core values sorry the core wounds there really well because Ron, who has felt rejected, who has felt very much like he's an afterthought for a lot of his life, who kind of knows that the only reason he was born is because his his mother desperately wanted a daughter. Um, And so he was just another son that kind of got in the way of that. He's got all of that on his, his shoulders and he gets something which is new which has incredible meaning for him, which is very pertinent for him because he's never had that before or he only has it very, very rarely. It's something which, you know, hits hard in that way. Yeah. Whereas Harry, who has never had a great sense of belonging with among people, you know, ne- doesn't have that same sense of heritage that Ron kind of... Uh, takes for granted is the wrong word but you know which which ron just has access to um gets something which is the core you know a core symbol of belonging um a symbol of 
total family because it's an heirloom and that is incredibly significant to him so what we're really saying here is here yeah, we've kind of we seem to have left butter behind we haven't all the all these core wounds this is a very baseline thing you can do um look at what your character is doing consciously what is their core wound what is the likely resultant main character arc for them um other things blending together do their closest you know the characters they're most going to be working with or against have complementary core wounds and character arcs or mm. failed character arcs um and this yeah admittedly that i've kind of strayed into structure a little bit but this is this is all butter this is all the relatable stuff that you can just make people click with your characters over yes absolutely um and at the end of the day remember that a lot of fiction is a vehicle to explore the fundamental aspects of being human um that comes in the form of escapism um but also uh catharsis as we've discussed in the past um and exploration of darker um sadder kind of emotions um so having a character who is exhibiting or going through the kind of motions of something like feeling abandoned feeling betrayed feeling lost or not understood or alone um i think there's a reason why we see a lot of that in fantasy because i think a lot of people who read fantasy are going there for escapism which is why it is something that they will immediately kind of connect with um because the characters also kind of want a sense of escapism and they're escaping from one thing or another they're looking for acceptance within a world which perhaps has not been very accepting yeah okay right we're going to wrap this up for this week um but make sure you tune in next week for part two of the buttery goodness Um, And do remember, we love hearing from you guys. So if there are any points that you think that we've missed or anything that you think, um, you know, oh, wow, I never even considered that for my character, etc. We would love to hear from you. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Tumblr or our Twitter, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Before we go, however, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Yes, I've just finished Kaike by Vashnavi Patel. Okay. Um, which is a retelling of... A, I, I don't think it's the whole thing. I think it's a certain segment of the Ramashama, which right. is a body of Hindu myth. And it's talking about um, the third wife, uh, Kaike, who is given somewhat bad rap in certain... Um, in, interpretations and translations of that myth mm-hmm. um it, it's her the story from her perspective uh, it's had some very very favorable reviews i have to note here it's also had a couple of reviews by um people who are actually who are Hind- i mean the, the the author is hindu mm-hmm. um but her perspective on hinduism is obviously different from other people's perspective on hinduism mm-hmm. and um let's just say that I I think there are some people who have not liked it because, you know, in the same way that you or I might be, I might be irritated by how someone retold a, an Irish myth, for example, feeling that they hadn't understood the core of the myth. It is that kind of thing. If you see what I mean? Yeah. 
yeah um anyway it's <laughs> it's kind of a slightly more uh feminist version of it which sometimes doesn't always quite land for me because we are talking about you know india and yes uh so of a certain you know pre-medieval india even and it obviously baked in to um certain religious practices and things women had very specific roles and men had very specific roles and you know some of that is is still translated today so even with my limited knowledge on the subject some of that didn't quite land for me however taking it as a piece of fantasy um which uses the ramashama as its it's as its baseline i found it mm -hmm. really engaging um it's a very told story but it, this is I mean, I thought it was young adult to start with because you start off with a, a young character who's about 12 when her mother is banished by her, her, her Raja father. Um, but she's sort of in her 40s by the end of the book, so I actually think it is actually adult fantasy. <laughs> and you, you kind of go okay. through her entire life. Um, she ends up as the third wife of a Raja of another country, or, you know, small country within sort of Indian continent and um there's all sorts of things there's there's wonderful creatures there's there's demons there's gods the gods have lots of influence there's a fascinating sort of um thread magic series where um sort of a thread magic system is what i'm trying to say where she's just got this ability to sort of look and see the ties that bind people and strengthen them or weaken them or occasionally even snap them so she can subtly influence people into doing what she wants as well. Um, That's a really interesting yeah, it, idea. It's really interesting. If, like me, you're interested in sort of um, Indian mythology or Hindu mythology, then you probably really enjoy this. I, I would say, obviously, don't use this as, as a quote. Don't, don't quote from this as kind of this. This is the definitive version of what happens in the Ramachandra. Obviously, you read some of the original translations as well. But then, you know, our readers aren't that, our listeners aren't that dim, are they? So they're not going to just go, <laughs> oh, this one book. Um, no, I, I really liked it. I really liked what the author did with it. The voice is very fresh. Um, and it was really, what I, some of the things I really liked was the friendship and mutual support and sisterhood between the three wives. Instead of all vying for attention and having petty jealousies, they all got on really well together and formed a women's council. And I'm like, I'm all for this. <laughs> I really like that interpretation. That was cool. Um, and they, they all had children and they kind of raised their children communally as well. So it was kind of like a, there were parts of the book where it was kind of just like a really big happy household, despite the fact that this was an arranged marriage she's been forced into. That's a really so, cool um, idea. Yeah, it's good. It It's... um. If you're familiar with the myth, then you'll either really love the fresh interpretation or you'll be really annoyed. Kind of like me every time there's a new King Arthur type interpretation. <laughs> um, and obviously it's not the same as the Maharabhata, which is a separate no. body of, of myth. But uh, anyway, I really yes. enjoyed it. The audiobook is very good and um, yeah, it's great. I highly recommend it. It's out in a couple of weeks time, I think. Oh, fantastic. Great. Um, I will definitely have to check that out. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye!
You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>